What a day we have here. Um, I live in a place where, I don't know, I just, I just woke up this morning and there's this thing here in North Carolina. Uh, I, I live, for those of you who don't know me, good morning, my name's Tom and I live between Edinburgh and Glasgow, Scotland. And you have this thing here in North Carolina called the sun <laughs> and it's just gorgeous. So if I'm distracted during the sermon, it's not because the speaker's uninteresting. I'm just amazed that, that this thing God created is still working out there. I, we don't see it very often over in Scotland, but uh, it's great to see you, and uh, what a great start we had last night. And I need you to put your seatbelt on, because today is a power-packed day. Um, if you weren't here last night, we, we made this comment that don't try to digest everything. You can't digest all of today today. You'll get spiritual indigestion <laughs> if you attempt that. It's all being recorded. All the MP3s will be on the website, hopefully this, this next week. But um, just, just soak it in and, and listen. We got a lot of work to do in God today. It is a thrill to have uh, Carl and Lori Koch with us. Um, this is, is going to be a, a great treat if you've never heard Dr. Koch before. Um, I was just chatting with him, trying to wrap my mind around all that he's involved in around the world. And as the way he was describing it to me, I'm not sure that he completely understands <laughs> what all he's involved in. But God has expanded the Carl Koch evangelistic ministry to a training ministry now, and they're involved in 18 nations, I think, around the world. And you can go on their website and look at it. They're involved in India and all kinds of places. And uh, not, not only is um, she involved in all that, but just as a, as a Hebrew scholar, there is a capacity to open up the riches that are only experienced when you read the scriptures in the original languages, and it's just an absolute treat for us to have Dr. Koch with us. So would you welcome, help me welcome in a very warm CBU way, Carl Koch as he comes to teach this morning. Thank you. I have mastered several languages uh, and working now on Southern. I married my wife from South Carolina, so I want to practice my Southern to see how I'm doing. Morning, y'all. <laughs> first time I spoke for Carl Bates at the First Baptist Church in Charlotte, he sent a little five-foot deacon to take me back to the hotel who said this. Dr. Cope, I'm here to carry you to your motel. <laughs> I said, you better get some help. I weigh 200 pounds. <laughs> he said, I didn't mean tote. I meant carry. <laughs> How am I doing? Good. I now know the difference between tote and carry. <laughs> then the thrill of my life was to go to Ma and Pa Lineberger's fish camp in Gastonia. I'm from Los Angeles, second largest city in Mexico. <laughs> and the lady said, y'all want some hush puppies? Now that's a pair of shoes. I'd, I'd been to some restaurants where you take them off but I didn't know you had to eat fish with soft shoes on. So I said, I believe I'll have some. Turns out it's a little bit of cornmeal. Then she asked this immortal question to introduce me to the South. Y'all want some ass water? I said, no, ma'am, I don't believe I'll have any of that. How many understood that's ice water? <laughs> so my wife has spoken of me 
in the following way, which I want you to repeat, and you can use it any time during the lesson. He ain't right. <laughs> Not sure what that means, but let's all practice it. One, two, three. He ain't right. Now, the way you get away with that is you follow it with the next sentence in the South. All you have to say to soften it is, bless your heart. <laughs> so let's try them together now. He ain't right. He ain't right. Bless his heart. And then that softens a little more when you say his mother's that way. <laughs> so let's try all three of them. He ain't right. Bless his heart. His mother's a lot. Now you know who I am. Our lesson today starts with the scripture for the week. Romans 14, 17, which says, for the kingdom of God is not meat or drink. If you're a rabbi, you always teach a positive by a negative. Many times Jesus speaks in the New Testament and we can't figure out why the crowd's so angry by what he says. Well, the Jews know the word of God and therefore when a rabbi would teach, if he didn't quote the next verse, that's what he wanted to emphasize. So the audience would expect the speaker to go to the next verse, and Jesus would not, and therefore they would know that's what he meant to emphasize, and that's why they got angry. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, for example, and he says, I have come because the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news, to heal the brokenhearted, and so on and so forth. And then he stops in the middle of a sentence. Because the next says to bring condemnation and judgment. That's why they were angry at him, because they knew the word of God. Unfortunately, in the body of Christ, we're an inch deep and a mile wide. We don't know the word of God any longer, and therefore we are victims to the likes of people who sell you free water. I don't know if I went too fast. Who sell you free water. Anyway, if it's too fast, we'll slow it down. So we look at the text. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. So the negative establishes the positive. Now, in my case, the kingdom of God was all about meat and drink. I was born very close to my mother and uh, found out later on she was a two-fisted, whiskey-drinking Roman Catholic woman named Mary Elizabeth McManamy, Scotch-Irish. Two-fisted means the bottle in one hand and the glass in the other. Died an alcoholic, Roman Catholic. Kingdom of God certainly to her was drink. My father was a teetotal and Baptist. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? The difference between a Methodist and a Baptist is the Baptist won't talk to you in the liquor store. When I was five years old, they were divorced, and the sovereignty of God allowed me to be given custody to my father, who remarried a teetotaling, Pentecostal, bun-wearing, no makeup, no jewelry. And for the next nine years, life was at peace because there was no conflict over drink. Both were teetotalers, and that went on really well till I turned 16. And as the basketball guard and star for the football team, I started to date a Presbyterian cheerleader. <laughs> Now's the time for he ain't right. Let's try it. <laughs> Mom's that way. Now, they were located exactly 90 feet from the front door of the Coos Bay, Oregon, Foursquare Gospel Church. There you had a PCA USA Presbyterian Church right across the street. The pastor smoked a pipe. Ours would send him to hell in a handbasket because he no tobacco. And they were sipping saints who drank wine. And, of course, we were teetotalers. And now I'm dating this cheerleader. And my parents began to pray for my backslidden state to keep me in glory. Well... They said no dancing at the Pentecostal church, no smoking, 
no drinking, no bowling. If it ended in ing, we couldn't do it. <laughs> Unless it was praying, repenting, confessing. Those things we could do. And I talked my parents into a date with this Presbyterian hussy. <laughs> yes, you can go to the junior prom. It's her junior prom. I was a senior, much older than she was. Actually, the happiest three years of my life was the third grade. They wouldn't let me go to the fourth grade. My dad was there. You'll have to understand, I couldn't pass my own father. And I was so long in the third grade, I fell in love with my school teacher, and I asked her to marry me. And the problem was the age difference. I was 20 years older than she was. And I know. So don't go to the dance and don't dance. Stay behind the punch bowl table. You stay Christian. Let the Presbyterian cheerleader da dance with the rest of the basketball team. But you, so yes, Mom, yes, Dad. So we went. She talked me into one dance. This Presbyterian had power over me. <laughs> so I danced one dance. Thought I had gotten away with it. Say it with me, beware. Your sins will find you out. They published the high school annual. And the first page, full page cover, because cheerleader and basketball star, guess who was eight and a half by 11? Anyway, it took my parents years to show their face at the Four Square Church. And then something happened in my life. God called me into the ministry, and he used two calls to go into the ministry. Number one, to equip saints for the work of the ministry. That's why the TPI program, and I'm educating all over the world. And number two, to help bring a measurable unity to the body of Messiah. That's John chapter 17. And when I went to the seminary, the Presbyterian that had caused my downfall was replaced by a Presbyterian who was probably the wisest, most intelligent man who lived during his lifetime, one of the 15 scholars of Europe, Boutrous Abdel Malik, a 1936 graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary and Theological, or excuse me, and the university, both PhDs from the same Princeton. Boutrous Malik, who was Egyptian, taught me Hebrew. The language, of course, of Jesus and Moses and Paul and David and John. And how many are so grateful today that we have up here the language from Mount Sinai and that Paul and Moses both had the foresight to translate this King James English immediately back into Hebrew and into Greek. How many are so grateful for that? He ain't right. So, folks, the not is very important to me because I grew up where that was the measure of the kingdom of God. That's what we were judged. And I'm here to tell you that this whole thing about Romans chapter 14 is about judging one another, and that's how I started my experience in the kingdom of God. To me, it was what you drank or it was what you ate. It was what you wore in fact, I need to get something completely out of my heart before it brings me to repentance at the altar because every woman in my little four-square gospel church of Coos Bay, Oregon, who wore makeup, jewelry, or pants was a Jezebel. So let's see. I want every Jezebel to please rise. <laughs> How many are grateful for a little bit of paint and a little... Anyway, I don't want to get into all that. You ain't right. So the kingdom of God, all of my experience in ministry has been about the not, the judging of one another, and that's exactly what has killed the charismatic renewal. People judging one another marginalized this move of God simply because we wouldn't want to associate. In the early days, it didn't matter. And what was important was righteousness, 
peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and the movement flourished. But because we began to examine whether you dunk or immerse or sprinkle or whether you have a mikvah in your church or a baptismal tank or whether your water is pure or not pure, for heaven's sakes, they baptize with sand in Saudi Arabia because they haven't got any water. It was so dry when I pastored in Lubbock, Texas, the Baptist churches were sprinkling. Uh, the, the Presbyterians were just using a washcloth. And uh, the Roman Catholics were turning wine back into water. But anyway, uh, these are things you think about on the way home. They don't make sense right now. But the big shock in my life in 1983 when I was the host of a great big event at the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas, and I associated with the likes of Marilyn Hickey and Kenneth Copeland and Charles Capps, and that wasn't part of my group. And because I was with them, guilt by association, the ones I was with jettisoned me. Guilty by association. And then in 1986, when I asked Jim Jackson to please come to Charlotte and help us, I was leading the Ministerial Association. I pastored the founding church, the PTL, and Gar Memorial Church became very important in the city of Charlotte. So we gathered everybody, and I got even the bishop, Bishop Bailey from the Roman Catholic Church, to give special dispensations so that Catholics could have communion with Protestants. You can't imagine working on the unity of the body of Christ. And of course, it was boycotted by a certain Pentecostal group that I won't mention by name. So the kingdom of God, what happened to my slide? The kingdom of God to most people is meat and drink. It's who you show, associate with. On the platform of that event in Charlotte where we had Pastor Mobley's successor, Dick Little, Presbyterian fellow. We had Percy Burns, a Presbyterian fellow. We had a Herb Murley, a Lutheran fellow. And Vincent Sinan and I were the only two on the platform. And the mayor of the city of Charlotte was standing in awe watching all this, Sue Myrick. And Vincent and I looked at each other, and they were singing praise and worship. Thousands of Lutherans and Methodists and Baptists, you remember this event, all whirling around, and the two Pentecostals on the platform standing there like they were frozen stiff. <laughs> and I said, Vincent, were you taught also that you couldn't dance? Remember, no dancing? The only two people that should have been dancing, oh, we had some folks in our church doing the foxtrot, but anyway... I don't even know what that was, but that's what they interpreted dance back in the 40s. And we recognized we weren't part of the group. The kingdom of God was impacting my behavior because there was no dancing. When the scripture clearly teaches, David danced before the Lord with all of his might. Nineteen different words used for dance and celebration in the Hebrew language. Spin around, dance a jig. The Irish jig is very big in Israel. Uh, they don't call it the Irish jig. They have another name for it. But folks, dancing is unto the Lord. You remember the early days in Pentecost? You couldn't keep them from dancing. But when I pastored Gar Memorial Church in Charlotte and the charismatic renewal was in full sway, a lady came to me and said, may I dance during the service? And there had never been any in the Pentecostal church, and I said, absolutely, help yourself. So she did, only to be stopped in the foyer by an elder in the church who said, there'll be no dancing here. I don't care what the Bible says. Oh. Now, folks, I, 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 I'm giving you all of this because this verse, we're going to just attack it. I'm going to treat you like seminarians. So when they said, buckle in today, you're going to start drinking from a fire hose, and try not to get your mouth in front of it because it'll rip your lips off. <laughs> so now we begin the slide presentation 
of this great commandment because the context of Romans 14, 17, the context is always important because the word context, if you take a verse from the Bible out of its context, it becomes a pretext. And you can preach anything you want to, such as cigarettes are totally acceptable because Rachel lit upon a camel. Tennis is God's sport because Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. Baseball is the game in the big inning. Honda is the car. They were all in one accord. This is called contextual robbery. You take it out of its context, you rob it. And what is the context of Romans 14, 17? The context is judging one another. I want to tell you what marginalizes a movement, what stops the charismatic renewal, seeing what people do, keeping your eyes on what they're doing, their behavior, whether they speak in tongues, whether they immerse, whether, whether, whether they watch what people do. You want to propel a movement? Keep your eyes on how people live. There will always be a need for people to remember that in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom is not what you do, it's who you are. It's how you live with the Lord God Almighty. And in the early days of the charismatic renewal, there was a lot of righteousness being taught, a lot of peace being taught, a lot of joy in the Holy Spirit. And everybody remembered those days, say amen. We actually ended up in those days celebrating our differences. When I stood in line with Father Francis McNutt, there's a number, a name you might remember, I don't know. When we would pray for people by the hundreds until our legs would actually give way. We didn't ask them when they came up to receive a healing for their marriage, did you get dunked or were you sprinkled? Never mind the word of God says that the Israelis, when they came out of Egypt, some were baptized in the sea, immersion, and some by the cloud, sprinkling rain. Hallelujah, if you're from Japan, let's just all say it. Hallelujah. Just get it right or don't do it at all. Folks, the context of Romans 14, 17 has to do with judging. Now look at verse number 14 because the Word of God has a very wonderful author. I recommend you read all of his books. <laughs> People always come up to me because I read a lot of, I used to read 200 pages every day of my life. So it was a book a day. So they always say, Dr. Koch, can you recommend a book for me? And I said, yes, John. <laughs> Psalms. Hallelujah. I don't recommend commentary since the Bible's the best commentary on itself. What does Romans 14, 4 say? Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Here's where the church busies itself. In judging another man's servant. What does that mean, judging someone who's under someone else's authority? Don't be judging a Baptist if they immerse. That's the authority they're under. Don't be judging a Presbyterian if they're sprinkling. That's the authority that they're under. My wife and I knelt down at a little Methodist church in the country where her father pastored. And they served me communion and they served leavened bread, and I kind of was stunned at it a little bit, and after the service was over, I asked her about it, and I said, how come they don't have matzah? And she said, they don't know about it. <laughs> so rather than judge them, I just entered into communion because it's Jesus, not what they're doing, and my relationship is with him, not them. Hallelujah, folks. 
So we need to understand the kingdom of God is not judging someone who is under someone else's authority. Now, let's talk about this eating and drinking before we move from this slide. As you know, the Jews have cataloged 613 commandments. They are divided various ways, but one of the ways is that they have 365 thou shalt nots. And they have 248 thou shalts. Now let's just kind of stroke our chin and go, hmm. 365, does that sound familiar? If you've ever had a two-year-old, this will make sense to you. You have to say no, no, no every day. Thou shalt not. 248. You may not stroke your chin with that one, but when you remove all the Shabbatim, the Sabbath days, out of their annual and 50th year cycle, guess how many days are left for you to be out in the public? 248. So 365 no's, 248 yes, do these things. We say we're not under that, and I say to you, get a life. Well, among the positive ones, 210th commandment is to honor the parents from Exodus 20, verse number 12. If you'll open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, you will find the alleged 10 commandments. Most people don't know how to divide them between 5 and 5. I hear some preachers on TV ignorantly say 4 and 6. Folks, it's 5 and 5. The first five have the name Lord, L-O-R-D in it all capitalized because we respect the Jews and don't call Jehovah by his name. We substitute the word Lord. The first five have to do with your relationship with God, and the last five have to do with your relationship with one another. And Jesus says, upon the commandment of love God and love your neighbor, hang all of the commandments. So these ten you are under. How many don't believe you have the right to commit murder today? That, by the way, means to gossip. Now, when you look at that commandment number 210 to honor your parents, you have to look into the negative 365 and you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 20, and it says in there that gluttony and drunkenness are an abomination to God. And in that context, it says it's not the over-drinking and the overeating; it is the re revelation of rebellion and stubbornness. Now, when you put that commandment back to honoring your parents, you are rebellious to your parents, so therefore you eat too much. You are stubborn, therefore you drink too much. Therefore, when you do something very important, when you parallel the commandments, the first five are with God and the last five are with man. So one equals six, two equals seven, the way you treat God, commandment three, is the way you shouldn't treat man, commandment number eight. Then four becomes nine, and five becomes ten. So contrasting commandment five, honor your parents, with commandment ten, don't covet, means you're looking at people's things and what they're doing, eating and drinking, rather than keeping your eyes on their relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Folks, I need to tell you the reason why the wisest man who ever lived wrote in Proverbs 23, don't eat, overeat, and don't overdrink, because when you do, you dishonor your parents. And Jesus mentions, at my return in the gospel of Matthew 24, he says in verse 49, the condition will be gluttony and drinking. I've never watched television during any period of my life where there are so many cooking shows as there are today. <laughs> I don't trust anyone who's cooking on the show that weighs over 300 pounds. <laughs> and those of you who try to attribute let us eat, drink, and be merry to Shakespeare or to some cowboy outlaw, it is actually a combination of Isaiah 22 and the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. That's the world's philosophy, and Jesus said, when I come, they will eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Folks, 
The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It is righteousness. It is joy. And it is, excuse me, peace. And it is joy in the Holy Spirit. Now look at the question found in Romans 14. Secondly, the question asked in Romans 14.10, we not only judge somebody else who is in another fellowship, we also judge the pastor of that fellowship. We judge a brother's servant and we judge the brother. King James uses, why do you set it not? Hebrew thinking, they always parallel two thoughts to make one point. It's kind of like putting an exclamation point. Why do you judge your brother and why do you reject your brother are two ways of saying the very same thing. When you judge somebody, you are saying by your statements, I rejected them. How many think we need to be inclusive and not exclusive? Therefore, we reach a conclusion in Romans 14, 13 that says, and that's the purpose of this weekend, and this is why you have invited me, and I thank Tom for inviting me, but that's why you'll have to listen to me for two hours where you hear the world's best jokes, except for Pastor Mobley, excuse me. I, the, the dean of humor is seated to my left. What does it say? Let's read it out loudly. Let us not, therefore, judge one another any more. How many have had it with this? How many have had it with this? And when I turn television on and I watch Christian preachers attacking one another, I don't have time for this. If what we have is so good, let's tell the whole world the positives of what's happened in our life. That through Christ, I've been made righteous. Through Christ, I have got peace in my life. Through Christ, I have the joy of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to tear somebody else down. Folks, we must stop judging one another because why? You ever heard the phrase, whatever is good for the goose is good for the gander? Now turn to your neighbor and look who's here. I don't want anybody to miss. Turn around and see who's here. You'll notice them as one of the creations of God. Please take a close look. Their left ear is lower than their right ear. I don't know why. And so on. God's got a sense of humor. But turn to your neighbor. Even if you've been married to them, take a good look. They, and that's the bride of Christ. You know. God handpicked that child. God has a sense of humor. I got stuff on my face growing that I didn't plant. <laughs> Had a doctor remove a mole from my face, and as he was operating, all I could see was his hands and the scalpel. I said, hey, doc, am I going to be able to play the piano when you're finished? <laughs> he said, of course. I said, great. I couldn't play when I came in. <laughs> anyway, uh, I know he's not right. His mother's that way. <laughs> Why don't we judge others? Because I'm telling you, this verse says, everybody's judging you. Guilty by association is the biggest disease in the body of Christ. Now, God called me to bring unity to the body of Christ, and I saw that in 1960 as getting my Baptist family to talk to my Pentecostal family. That would have been the biggest achievement in my life because the Baptists from whence I came said tongues were of Satan and the Pentecostals said they were from God and both used the same verse to prove their point. Just if I could get them to talk. So I set about writing a book and I tried to decode it. Word gifts, tongue speaking, and all that stuff was a red flag to certain groups. So I used the word charismatic all because of you. And I titled the book, God is Charismatic. And if God can be a giver of gifts and I'm a child of God, then it seemed right that I could be a dispenser of gifts. And everybody said. And before I could get my book published, the Holy Spirit moved on a bunch of those foreign Roman Catholic students Duquesne University in Pennsylvania and they wrote down to the headquarters of that campus and they got from South Bend, Indiana permission that speaking in tongues was in the canon and the whole charismatic renewal beat me to the publishing date of my book. 
And I said it once again, God, you don't really need me. I'm always trying to help God. And he says, you know, Abraham, are you tired of your Ishmael yet? How would you like an Isaac or two in your life? Anyway, how's that working for you, Carl? I was doing everything and asking God to bless it. He said, how about just doing what I asked you to do? But when you're German and there's a menorah in the holy place with seven branches on it, if seven's good, 25 would be better. So you just keep raising money to make the menorah bigger. How's that working for you, Carl? Anyway, he ain't right. Why be sensitive to judging? Because it's what? It's a waste of time. Our time should be spent learning the Torah, the Nevaim, the Ketuvim, the Berit Hadashah, the, the law, the prophets, the writings, the New Testament. Our time should be spent reading the Ketuva. What is the Ketuva? It's the wedding document. We call it the Bible. But this book is written about someone you're going to marry. Anybody get excited about marrying the Son of God? And because you've never seen him in the flesh, he handwrote the wedding document for you. This is a family album about Jesus Christ. It's all about him and what he likes and what he is like. It's called the ketuvah, the wedding document. Somebody's got to get excited here. Because you are the arusa, the betrothed. We walk around saying born again, saved, confirmed, all these terms. But folks, I want you to say something in Hebrew this morning besides amen. Everybody say ani, ani. arusa. I am the betrothed. His father handpicked me to marry him. That's the big picture. So judging one another is a waste of time. I've watched women when it comes time to someone getting married. And this is how the charismatic renewal will come back full strength if they'll take this one piece of advice. You get a bunch of women in a room and have one of them announce that they're going to get married and the entire group of women say, what do you want me to do? What can I do to help your wedding be a success? Somebody please is going to have to get cider. I'm going to blow up here. When I blow up, it isn't pretty. When someone is born again in a Baptist church and you're a Presbyterian, what can I do to help you? Hallelujah. You don't judge someone's servant. You don't judge them. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy. When someone experiences those three things, get on their bandwagon. Throw kerosene on their fire. Get with it. Romans chapter 14, verse 18 says, For he that in these things, righteousness, joy, and peace, Whoever does these things serves the Messiah. And the word serve me comes, prepares to be the bride. That's the word serve. What you should be doing is reading the wedding document to find out what he's like and what he likes. Because I got news for you. When he comes, there won't be a Baptist church on one corner and a synagogue on the other. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, Scythian or barbarian. How many are the one new man? It's up to you to become part of that kingdom. Romans 14, 19 says this, Therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify. Get involved in someone's marriage and betrothal to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring peace, edify, build them up. Now we come to some, some very important words, and the first word is the word kingdom. The word kingdom in Hebrew is the word malak, from the word melek. You are familiar with this word, you just don't know it. Malek in Hebrew 
to reign, to be king, and to possess, in our case, a kingdom, to possess a kingdom, and we are the kingdom he possesses. You're used to this word because it's part of another word you have frequently said all of your life, and we're going to stop and say it again. I want you to say king in Hebrew, Malik. Now, I want you to say Malik Shali. You've just said king mine or my king. But you get to contract those words like cannot becomes can't. So I want you to say Malki. If you've just said Malki, my king. Now, what king? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it is what? Righteousness. So how do you say righteousness in Hebrew, everybody? We will get to it in a moment. Zedek. 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 T-Z-E-D-E-K. Zedek. Malki. Zedek. Malki Zedek. Melchizedek. You've been saying it all of your life, but Jesus is your Malki Zedek. Your king of righteousness. Hallelujah. How many know that the righteousnesses, the decisions, the judgments we make are like filthy rags? Menstrual cloths. But how many believe that every choice, every decision, every judgment he's ever made is perfect and righteous? I have a king. Malchizedek. My king is a righteous king. Hallelujah. This is where the Pentecostals shout and praise God. We'll wait for them to get loose. Now, we had a wonderful table setting last night from Exodus 19, verse 5, but you'll notice the whole Exodus 19, verse 1 through 9, the key verses are found in verses 5 and 6, so we'll put them on the screen for you, and look what it says in Exodus 19, 5, if you will what? And Keep my covenant, then you will be the peculiar treasure unto me above all the earth. You'll be my kingdom. Now the words obey and keep become key words. So we put them on the screen for you because to a Jew, these words are very impressive and they underscore and undergird and place the foundation under the word kingdom and covenant. The word in Deuteronomy 6.4 translated, Hear, O Israel, Shema, Yisrael. So the Hebrew word from Deuteronomy 6.4, if you want to spell it in English, S-H-E-M-A, Shema. Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the word to obey is the same word to hear because... When my father had me in the woodshed and I had selected my own stick, he would say something used to irritate me worse than the spanking. He would say, hear me, boy. He wasn't checking my eardrum. What he was checking was, are you going to do what I ask you? To hear is not enough. It's the hear with the expectation to do. I don't want to leave this mountain not doing what the Holy Spirit speaks this weekend. I don't want to just hear. I want to become a what? Doer of the word and not a what? Hearer only. Then it says, if you will keep. And the word keep found in Genesis 2.15. He put him in the garden and he said, you keep the garden. The word is shamar. Sounds very similar. And you will see that the two letters at the beginning of each word are the same. Shema, shamar. To hear and obey, and the second one, to guard or to keep. When you keep a garden, you keep the varmints away. Lori and I have a little garden in Charlotte, and the deer just love it. <laughs> Hostas, tulips. And they always wait to hear us talking the night prior. The deer are listening, and when Lori and I say, tomorrow we're going to harvest the broccoli, <laughs> that's their sign to come into the garden. How many know what I'm talking about? They wait for us 
And by the way, does anybody know why the deer cross at those particular places on the road? Do they read that sign? You know, deer crossing here. I don't know about that. Signs bother me. I, I don't know what's happened to me, but signs really bother me. There's a sign in the men's room here in this hotel. It's really got me upset. Uh, it says wet floor. <laughs> anyway, uh, my mother told me never to do that. This is when you say what? All right. Then we look at verse 19.6a. If you will shema and shamar, if you will hear and obey, if you will guard and keep, then it says in Exodus 19.6a, then you become the kingdom of priests. We want to be in the kingdom of God and live the way we used to. But when you become a citizen of this nation of God, he knows the laws, he wrote them. A wise attorney from Winston-Salem told me one time, a court of law is that a judge understands the code, the law, and has the right to enforce it. How many believe if God wrote the laws, he has the right to what? So it's not an unfair, negative, judgmental thing. He says, if you'll obey my commands, things will go well with you. That's what being righteous is all about. So we put them together now in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. If you will obey my voice, then you'll be to me a kingdom of priests. And if you will keep my covenant, number two, then you will be the holy nation. Jewish people love doublets, things that are doubled. Baptists love three things. I was trained in a Baptist seminary, so I used to learn how to preach with three points, and then they would teach us to tell the dog story at the end where old Shep died, and that's when you gave the altar call. You get them emotionally involved in old Shep dying, and then you bring them down. Jews like to say things twice for emphasis. That's why you read in the New Testament the word amen, amen. It always precedes a sentence that's important to a Jew. You read it as verily, verily. So when Jesus says, amen, amen, I say unto you, please learn what he's saying. It's important. Now, what is the kingdom of God? It's righteousness. Here's where somebody's going to get excited, I hope. Hebrew for righteousness. It's the word tzedakah. And then I have RFM up there, which means the right of first mention. When you're studying the Bible, wherever a word appears for the first time, it has priority and all other verses that refer to that same subject must not get outside the scope of the first mention. And I love what it says in Genesis 15, 6. Please, somebody get excited because the gospel was preached to Abraham in Romans chapter 12. It was accepted by Abraham in Romans chapter 15. And then in Genesis 22, the gospel was revealed to Abraham, death, burial, and resurrection. How many are grateful for the story of Isaac? It's not his death. How many know it to be his resurrection? And then in the 26th chapter, verse 5, then he introduces to obey the commandments. So when you look at the time that the word righteousness is first used in the Bible, it's in the feminine form. Hallelujah, folks. Why? Because this is his salvation. Somebody's going to get excited, I hope. Salvation has to do with women. Salvation, the mercy of God entering his womb. The word rachem, rachem, to be saved, to be in the womb of God, they're the same word in Hebrew. So when a Jew understands salvation, it means you are conceived and taken care of in the womb. And then when you are birthed, it's not the birth, it's the rebirth. The scripture says birth of a baby is at conception and the rebirth of the baby is after 40 weeks. That's when it comes out of the birth canal and it's born again. Somebody needs to get excited here. I don't care what they say in politics. The Bible is always right. David said, you knew me in my substance, the sperm and the egg. Somebody has to get more happy than this. God knew you the day the DNA crossed. Amen. 
Let's sing a Japanese song, Breast the Roar. Anyway, hoary is the roar. That's Japanese. Yeah. The exact parallel between natural birth and spiritual development are exactly the same. And the myth that is in the body of Christ that Jews get saved by obeying the Torah and Christians get saved by grace is a lie from the pit of hell. Both are saved according to a Jew named the Apostle Paul by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. No Jew who understands this will ever say we are saved by obeying the Torah. How could that happen since this happened? They went into Egypt. They were birthed as a nation in Abraham. They were in that womb for 40 cycles, 400 years. And when they came out of Egypt, the word Egypt is the word Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim in Hebrew means birth canal. When they came out of Egypt, they came into their new promises through the birth canal. And then they were baptized in the water. And then guess what? Three months later, God gave them the Torah. You can hardly get saved by obeying the Torah if you don't get it till after you've been born again. Anyway, we don't think. Scripture says, think not, I have come to destroy the Torah or the prophets, and we Christians have been thinking ever since. Why is this important that Abraham has a feminine gender? Because he was saved the same way you were saved. Jesus is explaining it to Nicodemus. How can I, when I am old, Nicodemus, say, enter back into my... He said, that which is flesh is what? But that which is spiritual. Jesus does the comparison. Paul says, what you see in the natural is happening in the spiritual. Hallelujah. Abraham was born again. Genesis 15, 6. The same way you are born again. How many are grateful for the womb and the mercy of God? How many love what David told his son in Psalm 91? He who dwells in that secret place, the womb of God, the most holy one, shall be provided his protection. Hallelujah. Righteousness mentioned in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God counted it to him as righteousness. You find this word again in Psalm 19, 9. The judgments of the Lord are true and give God a praise offering right now that every word that he has written in this book, he is, hallelujah, malek shali tzedek, malkizedek, he is righteous altogether. What did Jesus have to say about this matter? Folks, when it says in Matthew 6, 33a, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, take away the word first. It should have been translated, but seek ye only the kingdom of God and his righteousness. First means, I'll just kind of put him first once in a while, but seek ye only the kingdom and his what? If he's ever made a judgment, Go thou and do likewise. Hallelujah. Now we move to peace. This is where the Presbyterians might even shout hallelujah. We're going to go to the word peace because the kingdom of God is what? What is the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Shalom. It's got four letters in it so you know it's not a root verb. It comes from this this and this. You have to drop that letter. The root is shalom, but we make it shalom, and it's translated the word peace. Somebody walks up to me and says, Dr. Koch, my shalom cha, how are you this morning? I say, shlomi tov. My shalom is good. My health is good. My finances, they're good. My wife is good. My family is good. This word shalom is all-encompassing. The kingdom of God is your health, your wellness, your soundness in your entire life and everybody in your household. I love Isaiah 26.3. Let's look at it in Hebrew. 
not so that you would read it or to be an egghead, but to see what happens when you translate from one language to the next. It's impossible to translate from one language to the next without leaving things behind. If you all were uh, speaking Spanish this morning and I spoke to you in Spanish and I said to you, my father kicked the bucket in 1986. You would think, what in the world is he telling the anecdote, anecdote of his father kicking a pail? How many know the anecdote? My father kicked a bucket means what? He died. He died. In Mexico, he stretched out his leg. In India, he laid down his head. In Hebrew, he hung himself. No matter how you die, if you're Jewish, he hung himself in 1986. He kicked the bucket in 1986. Now you'll understand why it seems to have a contradiction about Judas Iscariot when there is no contradiction at all. One is the idiom. But here we have shalom, strofe, shalom. Thou wilt keep him in peace, peace whose mind is stayed on his word, his word. You can't translate that into English because it would make no sense if you read it. Thou will keep him in peace, peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. So they actually put commentary there, and they went to the New Testament for the commentary. What kind of peace? Back it up one screen. What kind of peace? Please, if you're thinking with me, please get excited. This is a multiplication sign, actually. God's peace times God's peace. You keep your mind on the word of God and you'll have peace that the world cannot give and the world will not understand. You can go through death. You can go through heartache. We're now praying for a young man up in Jackson, New Jersey, who's living on the cusp of death and life because he OD'd as a pastor's son. He OD'd on heroin. And I don't know. I have to leave these meetings and go call on the cell phone. Is he still alive? Is he still with us? To this day, God is cleansing his lungs because he vomited and aspirated into his lungs, and that's the greater danger now. And so, folks, when I get emails from the parents, it sounds like they're solid rocks in the midst of a disaster. Why? They have God's peace times God's peace. Now we go to the next slide and we do it for you in English so that you get it literally translated. The mind stayed on you, your word, you God will keep in your peace times itself. Why? Because that man puts his whole weight upon you. How did Jesus describe this peace in John 14? How many like this? How many charismatics like this verse? But the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, the ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, what will he do? Teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I said unto you. Shalom, I leave with you. Shalom, shali, give I to you my peace. He says it twice, just like it said it twice in Isaiah chapter 26. What kind of peace do we get? Not like the what? We don't have the world's peace. The kingdom of God is righteousness and God's peace times itself. How many love this limerick? On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. How does John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, describe his peace in 3 John verse 2? What does he say? And this is my hope for you today. Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper in health even as thy soul prospers. Even John says it twice. Shalom for your health and shalom for your soul. In the kingdom of God, righteous, obedient citizens 
are given God's shalom. Let me read it again. Righteous, obedient citizens are given God's shalom, who then live without fear or trouble in their hearts, which is really the definition of what? Joy in the Holy Ghost. Now we're going to look at two words for joy. The first Hebrew word for joy is the word chadah, to be glad, to rejoice. You find it in Nehemiah 8. You like this verse. Say it with me. For the... That's the kingdom of God. That was the gasoline in the charismatic renewal. People were just as happy as they could be. If you didn't look at what they did, just what they were doing, it was wonderful. When Vincent and I looked at a Lutheran pastor swirling around with his robe flowing out and a Catholic priest, Jim was looking at all of us and saying, when are the two Pentecostals going to get with it? Why was Herb Murley, now with the Lord, so happy? Because he was obedient to the word of God, and God had given him his peace, and the expression in his life was what? Joy. How many say amen? amen. Second Hebrew word for joy, which is found in Psalm chapter 16, is the word samach, to be glad, to rejoice. The primary idea is your face. go to churches now and they say, I'm so happy about Jesus. I just love the Lord. Choir begins in E minor. Now please explain this picture to me. I speak at a lot of synagogues. I speak at a lot of Christian churches. And when it comes time to communion, we have the Messiah. But when we have communion, it's a dirge. <laughs> communion is served. We got the Messiah and we're at a funeral. And across the street in the synagogue, they haven't seen him as Messiah yet. And when they come to having their Friday night Shabbat me Chava Nagila Hava Nagila Hava Nagila In Hebrew, let's party, let's party, let's party. It's party time. What's wrong with this picture? How many are grateful that he died, was buried, and resurrected for you? His body was striped for you, and his blood has cleansed you of every sin you'll ever commit. Communion ought to be, let's hold her down, folks. <laughs> we sing, if you're happy and you know it, say amen. <laughs> no, no. If you're happy and you're if you're, if you're happy and you know it, tell your face. <laughs> this word shemak means to be. How many teeth do we have? I forgot. I went to school and I, I couldn't get a job at the, at, the, at the Waffle House. I tried to get on at the Waffle House as a busboy, and they wouldn't hire me because I had too many front teeth. Anyway, uh, it's, it's an old story. You'll have to kind of say he ain't right. But try it. Turn to your neighbor and show him all. How many pearly whites do we have? 88 has to do with the key of the pianos, right? You better not have 88 teeth. I don't know how many we have. We have a dentist here. Help me here. 32, thank you. Show them all 32. Psalm 16, David says, Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in thy presence is the what? And at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The prophet Isaiah was a happy man. Look what he says in Isaiah 29. The meek shall increase, and their joy in the Lord shall increase, not diminish. What's happened to the charismatic renewal? I want the old days when we were just, like they say in Lubbock, Texas, hell bent for leather. 
You're riding a horse, the ears are back, and you're into praise and worship, and you don't care what anybody thinks or says. What did John say? He records these words of Jesus, if you obey my commandments, that's righteousness, and you'll abide in my love, that's your peace, even as I have kept my Father's and abide in his love. These things I have spoken unto you, why? Say it with me. That my joy will remain in the, and your joy in the Holy Ghost might be what? Now we come to the close. John 16 says, Amen, amen. Verily, verily. What I'm saying now is important. This is your assignment from Dr. Koch. Whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. And up till now, you have not asked. But I tell you, as my bride, my betrothed, ask and you shall receive that your joy might be full. Don't take that verse out of context. That verse says, you're the bride to be. And his father, God, chose you to marry him. So you get to go to his father, God, and say, Dad, I'm here about the bassinet. I'm here about the blankets. I'm here about the diaper changing table. We're on pins and needles this weekend because our middle daughter is just a few days away from delivering the first granddaughter. We know her name is going to be Zelly Lorraine. Lorraine, Lori. Zelly is the other grandmother. And I already am calling her Zelly Lolly. That's her nickname. In about three or four days, maybe six, maybe ten, we don't know. That joy is coming. Now, what did Chelsea do? She called. Dad said, Dad, we need a changing table. We need a (laughs) chest of drawers. We need a... And what's Grandma doing? I can't keep her out of the store over across the road. She's getting all this stuff that's pink. I don't know what any of that means. But how many know that if you ask my father about us making babies, he'll give you whatever you want. Why? We're here to produce much fruit. How many would like to see the charismatic renewal go forward and not diminish, but increase all over again? Ask Dad in his name, and he'll give you whatever you ask. Why? He wants you to be a kingdom kid with fullness of joy.